Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Moving to California, I came in contact with In-N-Out. To God be the glory. And I never understood why people waited in that line so long. And then I tasted one. Well, recently I've come in contact with protein style. Oh, looks like you know exactly what I'm talking about. A double-double or a triple stack with maybe some extra cheese wrapped in lettuce with grilled onions. Someone say, hallelujah. (laughs) Two burgers in lettuce. All of the fun without the carbs. To God be the glory. Some of you are like, are you kidding me? You don't go to In-N-Out and get protein style. You get the bun, dude. Like, and you get three of them. I mean, what's a burger without the bun? I mean, a burger is meat, lettuce, and a bun. It's meat, lettuce. You can add condiments. You can, I mean, come on, we know the song. To all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, lettuce, cheese, Pickles, onions, on a... Okay, if you don't know the song, you're not from this country. We understand. (laughs) Or you're too young, and we don't understand that. Come on, it's a good time for the great taste of... We've replaced that here with in and out I don't know if you know this. Laos Laysen, that's his name. Laos Laysen of New Haven, Connecticut, invented the almighty hamburger. In 1900, he put two pieces of meat, a piece of lettuce on top of a bun, and sold it in New Haven, Connecticut as the ham burger. I mean, it was the original sandwich. In fact, lettuce makes the hamburger. You can't have a hamburger without the lettuce. But I didn't know if you know, you can't have our faith without the let us as well. You'll never forget it. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 10, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about in verse 19. Therefore, brethren... Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us, there it is, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us... There it is again. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And verse 24, let us, I think you got my point, 
Consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, even being double dippers. Oops, I added that. As is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I need to remind you that these are not the first let us in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 4, the Bible says in verse 1, let us fear. What does it mean to fear God? Well, the Bible describes it for us in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. He describes what the fear of the Lord is. Take a look at the screen. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God? And now he describes what the fear of the Lord is. It's to walk in all of his ways and to love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. He describes what it means to let us fear. But Hebrews chapter 4 verse 11. The Bible says again, let us be diligent. Let us be diligent to enter into rest. We studied it. You see, the promised land doesn't mean heaven. The promised land is the earth that we live in because there was sin in the promised land. There was war in the promised land. There's not going to be any sin or war in heaven. We're going to be at perfect peace with God. So the song, I'm crossing over the Jordan, well, it kind of theologically doesn't make sense because the promised land was God's inheritance of the abundant life we can have on earth as we follow his word. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. In Hebrews 4, chapter 16, we studied, let us boldly come to the throne of grace. Can I tell you something about God? God knows every single one of us in here will need grace at some point in our lives. He was speaking to Christians and he said, I know you're going to need grace, so just come to the throne room and receive it. Can I tell you something else about God? It's not like God doesn't know who we are. Do you remember when God saw Simon Peter for the first time? In John chapter 1, he looked at Simon and he goes, <laughs> and maybe he left, I don't know, I'm adding that. It's not in scripture. But he looked at him and he goes, you are Simon. The son of Jonah. I know who you are. You're a loud mouth. You're going to do all kinds of things. I know exactly who you are. You are Simon, son of Jonah, but you shall be Peter. Because I know if you choose to follow me, what I will make you to be. I will make you a rock of faith if you choose to follow. I know what I'm getting, but I know what I'm going to make you. So now... In the book of Hebrews, the writer is concluding the last 10 chapters that we just studied. Chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And right here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, the whole book begins to pivot. The whole book begins to introduce us to the final three chapters. uh, The rest of 10, 11, 12, and 13. So let's look back at Hebrews chapter 10, knowing now that we're concluding all of the proof that Jesus is our great high priest, that Jesus is better than anything. Why would you turn away from Jesus for anything in the world? 
follow Jesus. Don't drift away. Don't depart. Now we come to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, speaking to Christians, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. He's speaking to believers, brethren. He's telling the believer, he's telling each one of us, he's telling each one of us that Christ has opened up a door for you to have new life. He calls it the living way. Would you take a look at verse 20? By a new and living way. And he says, brethren, have boldness to enter into the new life that you've got. In other words, new life is a part of our faith. You just got to walk in it. It's for you. It's our right for being born again and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, because of the resurrection, the living way, we've been raised to walk into the newness of life. The resurrection offers us an opportunity to walk into the newness of life. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 4. I'm going to show you what Paul said. Therefore, we were buried with Christ through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Jesus Christ is the resurrected Christ. And he's asking us to take on that resurrection and to walk into the newness of life. He knows who you are, but he knows who he's making you. And what the writer is about to do for the rest of the book of Hebrews, he's going to describe to us exactly what the newness of life should look like in our life. Trust me, with all the let us, It's going to make our great faith. Jesus, he consecrated this new life for us by his blood through the veil. He consecrated. Now, I know that's a big theological term. Let me just break it down for you. The word actually means to cause something to go into effect. Now, let me describe. The election, so in the United States of America, the election consecrated the new president. Because there was an election, that's the cause, the effect of the election causes a new president to come into power or to re-elect the older president. But let's say there's a new president that's going to come into power. The election consecrates the new president. Jesus consecrated his death, the cause, brought us into the effect. He consecrated a new life for us. And he did this by shedding his blood on the cross. Now, if you're a first century Jew, you know exactly what the writer is trying to get across to us, that he, the Bible says, entered into the holy of holies by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. It's Leviticus chapter 4, and because we're not first century Jews, I want to help us understand because they would understand explicitly what he's trying to get across. It's Leviticus chapter 4. Bible says, the anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tabernacle of meeting. Now we know 
there is, uh, uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Remember, we studied that in Hebrews chapter 9. So they would go in with the blood. Then the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. Okay, Chet, what's going on here? Sprinkle blood seven times on a curtain? You see, before the priest on the one day of the year would enter into the Holy of Holies, he would have to take blood from the bull without the shedding of blood. It was God's design. There is no forgiveness of sins. And he had to sprinkle the blood on the curtain seven times. Now, why seven? God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. Six days, seventh day, he rested. The number seven in the Bible is the number of goodness. It's the number of completion. Because God looked at his creation and said it was good. So, for all of biblical history, the number seven was a sign and a symbol of God's complete goodness. So before the priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, he would have to completely cover over his sin. So seven times he would put the blood on the curtain and then he would pass through the blood to enter into the Holy of Holies. And we've learned in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And what the writer is telling us is that Jesus' sacrifice was absolutely complete. And because of his blood, we can now pass into the presence of the living, and go into the presence of the living God. We can pass through the veil. Now why? What happened when Jesus died? God tore the veil from top to to bottom. And he didn't just tear a little tear. He tore the whole thing so that anyone could come into the presence of God if they came through the blood of Jesus Christ. That means even you big sinners out there. <laughs> Have you seen our signboard? It says sinners wanted a choir within. We've all been saved by grace. We're all big sinners. If we've broken one part of the law, we've broken all of the law. How many of you are thankful that Jesus shed his blood so that we could go into the presence of God? His blood allows us access into the throne room of God. And because of his blood, take a look at verse 21, and having, uh, and having a high priest over the house of God. You see, because he gave his life, he became our high priest. Now, the writer has already told us all about the great high priest. We won't go back into it except to mention. The writer has already told us, and the assumption is already there, that the high priest is compassionate. The high priest was to go after those who were stray. He's already told us that Jesus, as the God-man, can sympathize with our weaknesses in Hebrews chapter 4. He's already told us in Hebrews chapter 7 that he's praying for us. Isn't that awesome? That your greatest prayer partner is Jesus. I love that about the Lord. And what he does is he's making intercession for us. It's Romans chapter 8. You'll see it on the screen. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is he who condemns? 
It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now, I don't know if you're coming out of a Catholic background. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, not Mary. I'm going straight to Jesus. He's got God's ear. And I love the fact that I can go to Jesus and he intercedes for me. How many of you prayed a prayer and you prayed it with all your heart and God did not answer that prayer and you were upset and now you look back on your life and you go, thank you Jesus for not answering that prayer. Anybody? Anyone? Okay. Like you really wanted to marry that person. You thought they were the one. I hope you're sitting next to that one. (laughs) But the Lord's interceding. And he's saying, no, he's really just praying for his wife. He's not praying for that one. Well, he's really praying for the job over here, not the job in Arizona. He doesn't know that the job in California is going to come through tomorrow. He's really praying for, or she's really praying for that test, but she needs to fail that test so that she learns she needs to study. Amen. All the students say, listen, you know, they they ripped prayer out of school in 1960, so they think, let me tell you something, as long as there are examinations in school, there will be prayer. Okay? There will be, every student, dear Jesus, if you just help me pass, I'll go to church on Sunday. More mothers, more mothers have gotten their kids to church through praying for them to pass and tests. But you also remember, he's not just our high priest. He's our great high priest. Because he's the order of Melchizedek. And we study what this means is that he was appointed by God, not by genealogy. It wasn't just that he was born. He was appointed by God. He's also eternal because he rose from the dead. Jesus is the only one qualified to give eternal life because he's the only one that conquered death. And because he's our great high priest, he gets to be over the house of God. And what the writer is doing is saying, you want to go to the temple? In the first century, Jesus made it very clear the temple's going to be destroyed in about 30 years. He goes, you want to go to the temple when you could go to Jesus who oversees the temple in the house of God? You've got a direct connect with God and you still want to go to the high priest here on earth? So with all of this doctrine as a backdrop, let us see what this lets us have. Keep it in your mind. Because this verse is now going to open up for us the last section of the entire book to describe for us the new life that we should have. So over the course of our next three and a half chapters, we've got to start evaluating in our lives Do we have this kind of life? Now, here's who I want to speak to. I want to speak to the believer who's been a believer for 30 years. You've been there and you've done that before. I want to speak to the believer who's been a believer for 50 years. Because what I'd like to express through the rest of the book of Hebrews is what your life should look like today. You see... The church is about 30 years old when the book of Hebrews is written. And so God is trying to get a message across 
to the saint, I have an abundant life for you. Problem is life happens. Girlfriend breaks up with you, lose the job. You feel like you're disappointed with God. Someone made you mad at church that took your parking spot. You always park there. (laughs) Who do they think they are? (laughs) You know what I'm going to do one Sunday? I'm not going to tell you. But I'm just going to rock all your worlds and ruin all your parking spaces. You know what I'm gonna? What, you know what I'm gonna do one Sunday too? I'm gonna move all the pews. Some of you will walk in here have no idea where to go because you always sit there. Amen. I'm not. I'm not pointing there. I'm just there. Okay, that's your seat. And when someone you are walking down the aisle and someone's in your seat, what happens? In your how dare they? New life. What I'd like for us to do is to take out a blank sheet of paper, spiritually speaking, and start writing down as a checklist, is this my life? This is what Jesus affords me. In fact, he gave his life for me to live in this new life, for me to have this kind of abundance. Do I have this? So it's Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 22, let us, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says, let us draw near. Now, let me tell you what this new life offers. This new life provides a personal relationship with God. I was hoping for maybe an amen or... Now, let me explain. I know that sounds like... I know that, Pastor Chet. Do you have any idea what this was for a first century Jew? I, I can have a personal relationship with God? Like I can say, our Father? I don't have to go through a priest. I don't have to offer a lamb. I don't have to... I could go into the Holy of Holies... Didn't guys used to wear bells and put a rope around their foot and they were terrified to walk in? I can go, are you sure? I can go in there? It overwhelmed them. And I wonder if it still overwhelms us. We can have a personal relationship with God. In fact, we can have full assurance because of our faith in Jesus that when we say, our Father... We are ushered into the very presence of God. In fact, James, half-brother of Jesus, watched him grow up. James chapter 4, verse 8, the Bible says, draw near to God. And what will he do? He will draw near to you. When you, let me tell you something about you. When you take a step towards the gates of heaven, the Father will come running to you. Do you remember the story of the prodigal? As soon as the father saw the prodigal take a step into the gate, the father went running to him. What a thought that I get to take a step towards God and he picks me up. You see, Christ died on the cross. And I don't want this to be old news to us. 
And what he did was he gave us his holiness. Because the only way that you can even get into the presence of God is that you're holy. So what Christ did was he died on the cross and rose again, and then he gave us his holiness. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We can go into the presence of God spiritually at any moment of any day, and one day, Because of the blood of Jesus, you will walk physically into the throne room of God and worship our Lord and Savior. So in this new life, what are you going to do with that? Well, John tells us in 1 John 3.3, for those of us, the Bible says, everyone who has this hope in him, everyone who's saved, everyone has this hope, purifies himself just as he's pure. In other words, you've been made holy, stay holy. You've been made holy, so start acting holy. In this new life, because you are representation and the holiness of Jesus has been put on you, I know what you're thinking. (laughs) Chet, I drove on the 405 today. It's hard to be holy in L.A. I had to go through L.A. today. It's hard to be holy. Do you have my boss? No, you work at the church. Everything's happy and joyful at the church. Do you know what it's like to work in the world, Chet? Do you have any idea what it is to be out there? Yes, I actually do. Before I was a pastor, I worked in the world. I know what it means. But can I tell you, the church... I'm still working with a bunch of sinners saved by grace as well. (laughs) I need to say this. You have some of the greatest servants in the world working here at Calvary Chapel South Bay. If there's a verse that describes the staff at South Bay, they serve the Lord with gladness. What, it's, it's incredible to be with them. Jesus knew that we'd still sin. When you came to Christ, he knew that you were going to yell at your kids. Did you know that? And he still saved you. If I was Jesus, I'd let you work it out a little bit before I brought you to heaven. In fact... Jesus saved you. And he knew. He knew what you did last weekend. Now, I don't know what you did, but I'm just... I did get a couple emails that was on point, I hope. No, Jesus knew that you'd still sin. So what he did was, as our great high priest... He made a way to get back in relationship with him. That if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all, not some. So I want to help you understand what the author is saying. Because there's some unrighteousness that's working out. He's made you holy, so stay holy. And he says that he sprinkled us 
Would you take a look again at verse 22? He's, he's having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. There are sins of the conscience. Now, he's cleared of us, of us of our past, but he knew there would be future sins. So he said, listen, confess those sins of the conscience. Now, those sins of the conscience, those sins of the spirit and the soul, they're internal. No one can see them. You can hide them, like unforgiveness and bitterness and pride and jealousy and resentment. No one needs to know, but you're struggling with them. Those are sins of the conscience. But then he says, take a look again, there's another type of sin, and our bodies washed with pure water. These are sins of the body. These are the flesh sins. These are external. These are the ones that everyone can see, like fornication, adultery, addictions, slander, or gossip. Let me give you an example. Do you remember in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus went out to dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house? First of all, if I was Jesus... I don't know if I'd go to Simon. Simon was his enemy. The only reason he brought Jesus to his house was to catch him so they'd have something to accuse him of. So Simon, he's got sins of the conscience. He's the guy. Hey, how you doing, Jesus? God bless you. So glad you came in. Come on, sit down. Have some hummus. Have some tabbouleh. Hey, God bless you. All the while in his heart, I hate you. You wretch. You ever been there before? Don't admit it. Because it's a secret. No one knows. God does, but you don't have to tell us. That's a sin of the conscience. But then at that dinner, a woman comes. Now just imagine, you're sitting down at dinner. And there you are sitting down, and a woman of the night. So you're at a meal with all men. And a woman of the night comes right up to Jesus. Now we know what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane. Imagine. And Jesus could care less what anyone was thinking. So a woman of the night comes, and now she cries at his feet. She's got a sin of the flesh. Everyone knows she's a prostitute. Everyone can see externally her sin. And usually what the church does is we don't degrade the sins that no one can see. We degrade the sins that everyone can see. Now, we might be bitter. We might be angry. We might have left that church and left that church and left that church. But we don't. We're going to praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But as soon as a sinner walks in, they're sinners. It's the difference between the sin of the flesh and the sin of the spirit. This woman had a sin of the flesh and the sin of the body. But when we get saved, the Bible says we're born again. We're given a fresh start. We're cleansed from our sins from the past. We have peace with God. Do you know what Jesus told the woman in Luke chapter 7? He said this, I love this. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's what salvation offers us. But once you're born again, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 explains what a born-again person looks like. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. So here's how you can know someone who is the devil's and someone who's been born again. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not a God. 
nor is he who does not love his brother. Who wants to hold hands and do kumbaya right now? (laughs) What the Bible is giving us is an indication of how you know you're a child of God. You're righteous. Let me tell you what righteous is. We want to do what God wants us to do. We're not rebellious to it. He asks us to do something, and we do it because we're his kid. And we love the brethren. Things like unforgiveness, bitterness, they're just not a part of our future. And though we may struggle, oh, I'll never forget. Corrie Tim Boone, if you know her story, I would encourage you to read the book The Hiding Place. During World War II, her and her family hid Jews in their home. They were arrested, and everyone but Corey died in concentration camps. One day, when Corey was communicating the gospel in the great state of California, years later, the Nazi soldier that watched her sister die came up to Corey and put his hand out to shake her hand. Corey writes, I left my hand in my pocket. And then she prayed. I can't forgive this man. But Jesus, I know you have. Would you forgive him through me and help me love this man? She reached out her hand and she hugged him through Jesus. This is the new life we're talking about. See, however, sometimes we can do things, even in the faith, that makes us not want to draw near to God. Maybe it's a sin of the spirit or a sin of the flesh. That's why John reminds us, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. But we have to purpose to practice righteousness. We can't just go back to God every single time we sin and go, Hey, forgive me again. Hey, forgive me again. Forgive me again. Forgive me again. If you're not making a practice of righteousness, but you're making a practice of wickedness, there's a problem with faith. Paul addresses the problem. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Go with me there, if you would, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll pick it up there in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. You know why he was writing this? Because they were still practicing things that needed to change. He understood that there were things in their life that they'd not gotten rid of yet. And he's speaking to the church. So he says, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, wow, he paints a dark picture, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So he just mentioned three sins because he knows it's going on in the church. He knows there's lewdness going on. He knows there's uncleanness or sexual immorality going on in the church. He knows there's greediness going on in the church. 
So he says, listen, Christian, you can't do this anymore. You've got to change. You're walking in newness of life. So he says in verse 20, but you've not so learned Christ. This is not what you learned about Jesus. If indeed you have heard him, that's a harsh rebuke. And have been taught by him, and the truth is in Jesus. So the way that Jesus says to live is the way that you should live. And then he says, verse 22, that you, circle that word, you have a responsibility. That you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. That's your job. When you know you shouldn't do it, put it off. And then he says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You're doing that. You're here on a Thursday night. You're learning about Jesus so that you can put off things that you're not supposed to live. But take a look what he says. And that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. What he's saying is, don't just get rid of something. Put something on. So if you are a hateful person, put on love. If you're a lying person, put on truthfulness. If you're a greedy person, put on generosity. If you're a bitter person, put on joy. You see, he's saying you've got to get rid of something and add a godly attribute to your faith. Now, when we draw near, it needs to be, the Bible says, with a true heart. That means you've got to put off some things. It means you've got to get rid of some things. Do you remember when Jesus was talking to the woman of the well? He said this. Those who want to worship must worship God in spirit and in... You can't come to God and feel good when you're a hypocrite. I loved the Queen of England. God save our gracious queen. I know she's gone home to be with the Lord. But I would have loved to have met her. Can you imagine if you go through all the protocol and you decide to take off your shoes and walk through the mud to go into Buckingham Palace with dirty feet? They would stop you at the door. You know why? You can't meet the queen in her palace with dirty feet. But oftentimes, hey, God, I'm here. And Jesus says, you're clean, but come here. We've got to wash your feet. Do you remember we told Peter? Peter, you're clean. I've covered you with the blood. But I know you're going to sin. So when you come before God to draw near, confess your sin. Get rid of it. Put it off. Clean up your feet. You're coming in front of the king. So that you can draw near. God wants to have a personal relationship with you. And if you're not in that personal relationship with him, experiencing the wonder of what it means to walk into the throne room of God, maybe there's a self-evaluation where I go, is there sin? Is there an internal sin? Is there an external sin that's keeping me from the overwhelming sense of coming into the presence of God? What the church say? Amen. Secondly, take a look at verse 23. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. We're going to go back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 now, verse 23. Let us 
hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast our confession. Let me tell you something about this new life. We get supernatural strength in this new life. Hold fast means don't let go no matter what. So Pastor Zach is from Ohio. There's not a lot of water in Ohio. I'm from the Bahamas. We've been together 13 years. I'm a water guy. He's a soccer guy. So I've learned, I actually have not learned a lot of soccer, um, but I can kick the ball now. But I have given him water. So he knows how to spearfish. We've gone to the Bahamas fishing and spearfishing. We've just done a lot of water things together. So we went on vacation one day uh, up into uh, Northern California, and I wanted to teach him how to ski. So we got behind the boat, 30-foot rope, and I said, whatever you do, don't let go of the rope. So he, it's a slot, a slot, slot. Slalom, that's the one ski. And he's like this, and I rev the engine. He don't let go, but he don't come up. (laughs) He is holding on so tight, like an anchor. I've got the throttle at full throttle, and we're going backwards. Like, we are not moving forward. He is holding on. I mean, think of the strength of a boat with a Yamaha... 250, and I have pummeled this thing forward, and he is holding on. Finally, he couldn't hold on much longer. He accidentally let go, and we see the rope coming straight for us. The rope comes right towards us, misses his child, hits my child in the head. (laughs) She's like this, and she goes like this, and she goes, oh my goodness, I'm bleeding. And then she passes out. Now, you know, and we were on vacation. We didn't want to go to the hospital, so we super glued it. She was fine. She has a little scar here. Someone married her. She's good, okay? She's stunning. We need that kind of strength and stamina that no matter the pressure, we're holding on. We've got the endurance and we've got the perseverance. We're holding on. See, the bottom line is that Christians have the power of the Holy Spirit behind us so we don't quit. Just a little bit later in Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 39. Hebrews chapter 10, just look over at a verse at verse 39. We are not those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Let me tell you what that verse says. We don't quit. We don't quit. And I need to let you know what these believers are going through. Go back a page to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Look what these believers were going through. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, so in other words, after you were saved, you endured, you held on, a great struggle with sufferings. 
partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations. People publicly were making fun of you, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated, for you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering. People were stealing from them of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. People were stealing from them. People were mocking them. And he's reminding them, you held on then, hold on now. Can I tell you what God does? God uses suffering like a coach uses a hard practice or a hard workout. It's Psalm chapter 18. Look at verse 34. Psalm chapter 18, verse 34. He teaches, speaking of God, my hands to make war. This word teaches, he trains, so that my arm can bend a bow of brass, bronze. Now, I don't know if you know this about me. I like to hunt, okay? I eat everything that I I kill, and I like to bow hunt. One year, I took up longbow, like, like Native American, you know, longbow hunting. Let me tell you something. To pull that piece of wood to bend took everything I had. I'm like, I can't imagine if it was brass. Do you know how strong you have to be to make a piece of brass bend? And all God is doing through suffering is training you to make you strong. I ask you to turn to Romans chapter 5. Let me prove it to you. Romans chapter 5, look at verse 3. Romans chapter 5, we're going to pick it up there in verse 3. Romans 5, verse 3. And not only that, but we also glory, we're thankful, we give praise to God for our suffering, our tribulations. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, And character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. He's saying, let me tell you what suffering does for us. It builds our character. Let me tell you what suffering does for us. It gives us hope because we've got the power of the Holy Spirit that's been poured out on us, who's constantly reminding us of the hope that we have in Christ. Let me tell you about that hope. The Holy Spirit, when we are in the pits of despair, will point us to the hope of eternal life. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, he who promised is faithful. He's pointing them from their misery on earth to the experience that they're going to have in heaven. God is faithful. You're going to get to heaven. Put your eyes on him. He's redirecting their attention towards heaven. You know what I loved about the old hymns? They're all about Jesus and they're all about heaven. You know the problem with the new songs today? They're all about what God can do for me. That's why I love going to third world countries. Because they only sing about heaven because there's nothing to look forward to on earth. The Holy Spirit pours out on us in the midst of our suffering. Get your high eyes looking up to heaven. Look at Paul 
Paul who was beaten, Paul who was shipwrecked, Paul who had been in perils at sea, perils on the road. He says this in 2 Corinthians. The Bible says, therefore, we don't lose heart. We don't quit. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man, the spirit of God in us, is being renewed day by day. For our, look what he calls it. Now, you know what he went through. For our light affliction, which is only for a moment. The Bible says life is a vapor. Now, hold that verse for just a minute. Let me tell you what happened to me two days ago. I'm walking across 19th Street in San Pedro. Someone coming up the hill going about 70 miles per hour didn't stop at the stop sign. I was within inches. I had to jump to the sidewalk. I was within inches of losing my life. Life is a vapor. He says for, look what he says, our light affliction, which is but a moment, it's just a vapor, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we don't look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Where are your eyes? The Holy Spirit in this new life will point your eyes to heaven. But not just to heaven. He will point us to the abundant life we have in Christ. You know the verse you have on your plaque up uh, up in your kitchen? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Even when things go wrong, we still have the good of Jesus. But my question is, while that's better than anything good that could be given to us on earth, my question is, is that your reality without wavering? Because you know what suffering does? Suffering makes us deal with whether this is our reality that Jesus is good enough for me. That's what suffering does. It makes us deal with the reality of our faith. Is Christ my living water or do I want something else? Does he completely satisfy me? Am I a Jesus and? Or am I just a Jesus? Or do I just need this thing for, to go right for me in order for it to be good? Do we get weak knees? And begin to waver in the midst of suffering. I want you to be careful. Because God may think you need a little bit more to strengthen your faith. I'll prove it to you. It's 1 Peter chapter 5. This is not like the, I know this is not the sermon that you tell your friends to watch. But look at 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 10. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After you suffered a while. Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Let the church say, Amen. Put that on a plaque. Put that on a plaque. No one likes to study First Peter because it's the doctrine of suffering. But what he's saying, the Holy Spirit is saying in this verse, I may need to let you settle in this for a little while until you're strengthened with the hands that can bend a bow of bronze. Is Jesus good enough? Let us draw near. Finally, let's close here.
Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Let us consider one another. Let me tell you something about this new life. In this new life, we are part of something bigger than ourselves. We're not alone. We're part of a family. And let us consider one another. Now, that word consider is a very important word because what that word means is start thinking about someone else beside yourself. That's what it means. We've got to start thinking about each other. We can't just be thinking about ourselves. We're part of the church. Look at you. Look at, look at you. Go ahead, look at you. You guys are like, we are? No, go ahead, look at you. I mean, some of you got crew cuts, and some of you guys got hair out to here. Some of you got sweatshirts on, some of you got shorts on. Some of you have flip-flops in church, and some of you are dressed to the hill. Look at us. We make up the, I guarantee half of you would not be friends with me in high school. We're so different. But we're the church, and we're all we got on this earth. We're part of the church. We need each other. We're the body of Christ. The eye can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Just imagine a bunch of rolling eyeballs coming into the church. (laughs) Just imagine feet walking in. Where would they go? They would have no idea. They're blind. The body can't say to the body, I have no need of you. So he says, you've got to start thinking about each other in this new way of life. So he tells them, Go to church. Now, I'm preaching to the choir. You guys are the double dippers. I know that, and I understand that. But he says, don't forsake assembling yourselves. That's all of ourselves. Not just the Thursday night crew, but the Sunday crew. Church is a vital part of our Christian growth. In fact, fellowship is a part of our worship. So he tells us, get together so you can exhort one another. Oh, there's a lot of pastors that love that word. Have you ever turned the sound down on Christian TV? Just turn the sound off on Christian TV. And look at a few of those preachers. You seen it? Have you seen it? I just hurt myself. (laughs) No, I really did. They love this passage. We've been called for me to exhort you. Problem is they don't know the word. The word is parakaleo. It's the same root word that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit, the parakalete, the helper. It means to come alongside. Let me give you a visual. Do you remember when Simon came alongside Jesus to help him out? That's why we get together. Hey, brother. 
I'm here for you. I'll tell you something. L.A. is rough. The church shouldn't be. And maybe, because now you're thinking of others, you don't get here late. Maybe you get here 15 minutes before because church isn't just for you now. And now you're trying to find someone to, hey, brother. And maybe you're not rushing to get home to in and out Maybe you stick around 20 more minutes and you find someone that you can just kind of carry their load. You see, we come alongside each other to stir us up. He says, listen, we come together and we gather together so that we can stir each other up in love. Because let's be honest. Sometimes the world can make us mad. Amen? Amen? And then we come to church on a Thursday. Hey, brother, it's glad you're here. <laughs> then you walk a little bit further. Oh, brother, I'm so glad to see you. <laughs> and then you walk into the building. Oh, God bless you. How are you? <laughs> By the time you get here, you've been loved on the whole way that now you're ready to worship. The L.A. is rough. The church shouldn't be. We are called to show love first. Jesus set the example. It's 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, the Bible says, we love him because he first loved us. When you see a mean person walking into church, they've had a bad day. Love on them and watch them love in return. Stir them up in love by giving them love first. But we're also supposed to stir each other up with good works. You know what I love happening out here? I led someone to the Lord. You'll never, I was at in and out the other day, and this person, I did what Pastor Chet said. I ordered my food, and I said, hey, I'm going to pray for my food. How can I pray for you? She broke down behind the cash register, and I led her to Jesus on her break, on her break, and I was able to lead her to the Lord. Well, I'm passing by, and I'm listening to this testimony. You led someone to the Lord? I've not led anyone to the Lord yet. I'm going to in and out tonight, and I'm going to pray for my cashier. And I'm going to get there, and I'm I'm about to pray for my food, and I want to pray for you. Can I pray for you? Would you like Jesus now? Someone else did, and I want to lead you to the Lord so I can go back and tell my story. And if I tell my story, maybe somebody else will lead. You see, when we go out and do the work of the ministry, and we come to church and tell everybody what God has done in our life, it spurs everybody else to do what we are doing. You see... There's a reason we need to be stirred, church. Do you not see what's going on in Israel? The Bible says, as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Do you know the violence that was in the world in the days of Noah and what we just experienced in the state of Maine? Let me tell you something. The day is approaching. We need to stir each other up because there's work to be done. And the writer knows there's work to be done. So he says, so much more as you see the date of the day approaching. We don't become careless with this time. We become careful to use our time to glorify our Father. Take a look at these last two verses as I stir you. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. 
works and glorify your Father in heaven. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you'll be my disciples. But I've done a mission trip. Ready for another? I did harvest last year. We got it this year. I made gave candy last year. We need it again this year. How many times are you going to be asking me to do things for the rest of your life? Because my job is to stir you. Because there are still people that don't know Jesus in L.A. And the day is approaching. Let's not be so selfish with our faith. The last thing this church needs to be is a social club. This church is a gas station. You come in, we fill you up, we send you out. Amen? Our Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. We're stirred. Spirit, you stirred us at the beginning of this service. You spoke to us and you said that you poured out your spirit on us. You have brought us into new life. You spoke to us. And we praised you and said, bless the Lord, O my soul. But I pray it would not just simply be in this seat. That we wouldn't come to church, we'd be the church. Stir us, Spirit. Stir us. And I know some of us. It's been difficult to draw near. Because we're struggling. So I pray that this message that if we draw near to you you'll come running to us. So Lord, now we're going to close in a song. This is our step. We're drawing near to you. This is what we know to do. And we're going to sing this song by faith. And we pray, draw near to us. And when we walk out of here, let the connection with the personal God usher us into new life. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.